Welcome to the Hub Dialogues, a podcast that celebrates big thinkers and bold ideas about a better future for all of us. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the executive director of the Hub, Canada's leading online news source for politics and policy. Our goal at the Hub is to escape the opinion bubbles of mainstream media and prod our popular discourse back to the issues and ideas that matter, that can shape our collective future. On the Hub podcast, Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas that they're passionate about and that they think we should be spending more time and attention focusing on. The next voice you'll hear is that of Sean Spear in conversation with our guest. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, editor-at-large at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by Isaac Stonefish, who's the founder and CEO of Strategy Risks, a contributing columnist for The Washington Post, an affiliated scholar at various universities and think tanks, a regular guest on different cable news programs, and most importantly, the author of the new book, America's Second, How America's Elites Are Making China Stronger. I'm grateful to be able to speak to Isaac about the book, its key insights, and their geopolitical consequences. It paints an alarming picture of the failure of Western foreign policy vis-a-vis China, for which we are now facing the consequences. Isaac, thanks for joining me, and congratulations on the book. Thanks so much for having me. Looking forward to the conversation. America's Second is a provocative title, but it's not just about the shock factor. You document the extraordinary extent to which former government officials, academics, business leaders, and even Hollywood have essentially traded off personal gain for advancing Chinese interests or kowtowing to Chinese demands. When did this start and how did it happen? It started way back in the mid-70s, early 70s, with Zhou Enlai, Henry Kissinger, sitting in a room discussing Chinese philosophy. And over a patient and very manipulative several years, Joe managed to convince Dr. Kissinger, one of the most brilliant Americans, frankly, who's ever lived, that not only were the U.S. interests really deeply tied in with Beijing's interests, but that strengthening China would be beneficial for the United States. And with some starts and stops, that's basically been the dictate of U.S.-China policy until just several years ago. Kissinger is fond of saying that five U.S. presidents, seven U.S. presidents have had the same policies on China. And if it ain't broke, don't fix it. But, you know, (laughs) those aren't Kissinger's words. That's my summary of him. But frankly, it's been broke for a long time. And I'm glad that the U.S. government and a lot of various interests around the United States are, are looking to fix it. And I guess my follow-up question would be, how did China come to exploit this American policy position that was really, as you observe in the book, a cross-partisan position, one that came to be reflected in elite opinion, in academic scholarship, and of course, in American policymaking? Beijing excels at offering both financial and psychological rewards to individuals that it feels like will be what it calls friends of China and people who are willing to advance Beijing's interests often to the detriment 
of the interests of their home country. And it's a very long-term, very patient process, but it's about convincing the people that they should take the party's views on how they see China and how they see China's external relationships. And it's important to distinguish that from Chinese people's views, which are quite varied, and what's in the best interest of China. It's what's in the best interest of the Chinese Communist Party. And it's something that we see repeated time and time again across the financial sector, nonprofits, universities, hospitals, this process of creating people who are friends of China. Isaac, one question I had as I read the book is how much of this story is one of old-fashioned corruption versus the flawed yet perhaps less unscrupulous idea that greater engagement and collaboration with China would contribute to political reform in the country? I guess, in other words, is this the story of personal graft, or is it about the diffusion of bad ideas, or both? It's a great question. I <laughs> wish I had put it that way in the book. I think that's very well worded. It's certainly about both. It's about how doing well by doing good can lead to disaster. Sometimes it's tough when you're, you know, putting on my old reporting hat for a second. How much can you ascribe motive to someone? You know, how much of it is malice? How much of it is incompetence? How much of it is them truly believing that, um, you know, a strong and stable China is best for the United States and the world? You know, certainly with some of the things that various people have done, uh, former Secretary of State Al Haig is a good example, as is Dr. Kissinger. We really can subscribe ideas of corruption, ideas of enriching themselves at the expense of both U.S. taxpayers and this vague idea of U.S. interest. And then I think for others, uh, President Jimmy Carter, for example, he seemed to truly believe that what he was doing was beneficial for both Beijing and the United States, but unfortunately played a role where he deflected criticism from the party and from great work he did in the 90s and the 2000s trying to bring village elections to China pivoted when Chairman Xi came to power to working to strengthen the party. Before we move on to what comes next in the U.S.-China relationship, it's just so great to set up the key thesis of the book. How has China's influence manifested itself in U.S. government policy, corporate decisions, and academic partnerships? Can you point to the ways in which it has shaped particular outcomes injurious to American interests? The most concrete is how it strengthened the revolving door, pioneered by Kissinger and former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright, former National Security Advisor Brent Scowcroft, where they learned that they could make a lot of money with their Chinese contacts from uh, after leaving office by acting as door openers for major US multinationals. And the idea is not that when these people were in government, uh, they did sweetheart deals. You know, I, it's certainly possible. I, I haven't seen the evidence of it. It's not what I'm alleging. Rather that when they left government, they were quoted as former national security advisor, former secretary of state, as opposed to CEO of a consulting company that is making money for helping Bloomberg or Coca-Cola or McKinsey in China. 
Um, that's one thing. I think for the U.S. corporations, you know, a lot of it is this idea of, okay, in what ways is companies' foreign policy and companies' interests distinguished from America's? And I think one way certainly is, you know, with all of the offshoring that we've seen. Uh, another way is with how corporate values on China don't, re don't reflect United States values. And we've seen this a lot more lately where uh, companies will suppress freedom of speech about China when they wouldn't dream of doing the same thing uh, about other aspects of the United States. In terms of the U.S. government itself, uh, Beijing has always preferred keeping China policy in the hands of a handful of old white men, uh, with very few exceptions, that's been the audience that they want to dictate to. Again, something pioneered by Kissinger. Uh, Hank Paulson was one as well, the former Treasury Secretary. The idea that you're the only ones who are brilliant enough to understand China. And let's make sure that the meddlesome house doesn't get involved, that this meddlesome senator uh, can't be involved in the policy because only you are truly brilliant enough to understand what our needs are. You're one click away from getting access to all the Hub's best journalism, commentary, analysis, and insights. Go to our website, www.thehub.ca, and sign up for our daily email newsletter per diem. Each morning at 7 a.m., into your email inbox, you'll receive our best journalism, the thoughts and analysis of our smartest columnists and contributors, all curated for you based on the issues and ideas that are moving the public debate. Sign up now, free of charge, at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program. Isaac, if we can now turn our conversation to looking forward, you alluded in an earlier answer that your book release comes at a time when there seems to be growing recognition that these old assumptions about China were wrong, and need to be replaced with new ones. How should American policymakers think about the country's relationship with China? What, in your view, needs to change? They need to understand, and a lot of them are already there, that a strong, stable China is not necessarily in the best interests of the United States. And you know, playing around with issues of regime change or destabilizing the party is incredibly dangerous, but so is waiting for the party to seize Taiwan, to seize the Senkakus, the disputed islands in the East Sea, to seize territory, more territory from Bhutan, Mongolia, other countries that it borders. And I think there needs to be a growing understanding that China jeopardizes U.S. hegemony. I think a lot of people, especially on the left, are uncomfortable with the idea that the United States is the world's most powerful country. Uh, it still is. Maybe it shouldn't be. Maybe another country should be. Maybe we should live in a bipolar world. But we need to be having a surface national debate about do we want to gracefully yield from the world stage as America won, uh, or what are the costs we're willing to shoulder to fight to keep our stance. Another aspect of this renewed thinking about America's relationship with China is leading to growing calls for what's sometimes called the coupling, particularly with respect to certain industries or technologies. Is that a practical or desirable option in your view? 
And if so, how should American policymakers distinguish between what one might describe as strategic versus non-strategic parts of the domestic economy? Reminds me of that overquoted adage about democracy being the the worst best system we have. A decoupling is not desirable. Uh, it's it's not advantageous, but it's the best option that we do have in certain areas. And I, I think what businesses haven't quite realized yet about U.S. policy towards Xinjiang, the region in northwest China where upwards of a million Muslims are in concentration camps, is that. The U.S. government is training businesses on how to reduce their reliance on China. And Xinjiang is a great way to do it because the human rights cost is so appalling. It's going to happen in certain, perhaps limited, perhaps extreme ways with the People's Liberation Army, with the Ministry of State Security, with other Chinese arms. And I think we do also want to remember that Beijing is far more decoupled from the United States than vice versa. It's far more difficult to get into China. It's far more difficult to get your company or your products into China than it is on the reverse. And that's probably always how it should be. The United States gets a lot of strength from being so open. But we do want to take less heed of the lip service that Chairman Xi plays to globalization and reform and opening and recognize that to get into China now, you mostly have to sit in a hotel room for 21 days, 28 days. And that is a very extreme form of decoupling. We've talked about policymaking. We've talked about industry. The book shines a light on Chinese efforts to influence American post-secondary institutions. What in your mind should universities be doing to protect themselves from this machinery of Chinese influence? So the one great strength that American universities have is their openness both to international students and to debates. And it's a very tricky situation because there are so many wonderful, brilliant Chinese students who disagree with the party, some who you know, disagree partially with the party, some who stand in lockstep with the party, but really want to study engineering at MIT. And I, I think the best thing we can do is foster a very open debate about what's going on in Xinjiang, what's happening with the party, issues involving the United Front, and not let fear dictate our actions. I think that will also require people to stand back and say, hey, listen, we shouldn't be partnering with this Chinese university because of the awful things they've done or are very credibly accused of doing. And so I I think the idea is that it cheapens Yale's brand to have a partnership with Singapore, which it had for a while, and uh, students having very limited ability to, say, express their sexuality in an LGBT perspective, or for NYU to have its partnership in Shanghai and to pretend that it has full freedom of expression there, which it doesn't. So I think universities need to say, we're not doing these because it contravenes our values. Or, listen, we know that China is an incredibly repressive place. We're not going to lie to you and pretend that we have freedom of speech here, which, you know, frankly, is what NYU did, uh, either out of naivete or uh, hopefulness, because it was, you know, one's hopeful that you can preserve the same level of freedom of speech, but being honest and open on these things to engender debate as opposed to suppressing it. Throughout those answers, Isaac, and indeed the book, one hears your call for a greater kind of clear-eyedness about China's intentions and its activities. 
We've spoken mostly about America in this conversation. If we can wrap up on Canada, China's Canada's second largest trading partner. Yet we've seen the consequences of its asymmetric relationship. Do you have any advice for Canadian policymakers about navigating the country's relationship with China, especially in a context in which the U.S. and China are entering a sustained period of geopolitical and technological competition? Canada gains little from acting as a wedge issue between the United States and China, or figuring out where it can work with China that the United States can't. Every country in the world is increasingly being forced to choose sides, and it's a sad reality of the world that we live in today. But it's always worrying when Canadian policymakers or business people, you know, try to use that to see, ah, okay, well, this is a good way for us to balance against the United States with China. I think the, like in many countries around the world, Canadian elite and Canadian policy views of China tend to differ from sort of, I'd say, average Canadian, because you know the, the average person doesn't exist anywhere in the world. But the general views about China, and especially the Chinese Communist Party, are a lot more negative among people in the streets, so to speak, than people in the halls of business and the government. And we are representative democracies. And while at the same time, we want to manage and reduce the ability for any sort of mob rule, we also do want to listen to the voters um, who want, like I think you said, a clear-eyed view on China and on what is in Canadians' interests. Well, the book is America Second, How America's Elites Are Making China Stronger. Isaac Stonefish, thank you so much for joining us at Hub Dialogues to share your insights and analysis. And again, congratulations on the book's release. Thanks so much. Really appreciate the smart questions. Great to chat with you. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading online news source for politics and policy. We hope that this episode has expanded your horizons, maybe opened your mind to some new ideas and perspectives. If you enjoyed this podcast, please don't forget to share it with your friends and family. Subscribe and leave us a rating and review on the Apple Podcast Store. I'm the Hub's executive director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's editor-at-large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar Guzman. Our audio editors are Alex Glutch and David Mata. Thanks for listening.